The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History One-on-One. As always, I'm Patrick DeVault. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Matthew Carter. Hello. Today we've got a good topic. It's the um, shot heard around the world. I know it's not the Revolutionary War shot heard around the world. It's the baseball shot heard around the world. It occurred in, occurred in October of 1951 at the Polo Grounds. And uh, Matthew can start us off with it. Well, basically... It was a play one. It was a playoff game, three-game playoff game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants to decide the National League pennant of 1951. And it was a great three-game series. And Bobby Thompson at the game three. Bobby Thompson, outfielder for the Giants, hit a home run off Ralph Branca to win the ball game for the Giants and to win the pennant going away. But the whole story about how we you got to that situation is is, you know, it's just classic baseball. It makes you love baseball. And you have to understand both teams in the era that we're going in. Because from nineteen forty seven to nineteen fifty seven, most people thought that that was the golden age of baseball in New York because you had all three teams in New York and they were all great in different parts and they were all in the World Series. Two out, and sometimes two two of the teams were in the World Series. There were a lot of Subway Series going on in that that era, and the Dodgers, you know, for years they weren't good, and then in the forties they got better, and then they got Jackie Robinson, and you know, coming into the fifty one season they had won, you know, you know, at the past four seasons they won two, you know, they won two nationally pins in the past four seasons, you know, and then the Giants, they. Starting in like the beginning of the 20th century, they've always been the, the number one team in New York until the 20s when the Yankees overtook them, and then in the 40s when the Dodgers overtook them, and they became basically the third team in a three team uh, city. You know, they their glory days were gone by then, you know, and and but you know, they in 51 they had Leo DeRocher as their manager who used to be the Dodgers manager. And they started being good. And, you know, the 51 season, you know, the Dodgers, I mean, it basically people were thinking either it's going to be the Dodgers, they were going to come back, they were going to win it, or maybe the Phillies, who won the pennant in 50, would come and win it. And then there was the Giants. And then all three of these teams were fighting for a spot. And, you know, to you know, fighting for a spot to win the national pennant. And at one point in August of 51, you know, August 11th, they the Dodgers had a 13-and-a-half game lead over the Giants. The Giants were in second place at that time. And they were – and everybody thought, they, they're, you know, the Dodgers were just going to run away with the National League pin and go face the Yankees again in the World Series like they've been doing, you know. But, man, <laughs> you know, the Giants 
won 16 straight games from August 12th to August 27th, and they cut the Dodgers' lead by six games. And then by September 20th, they had pulled to win four and a half games of the Dodgers in first place. And then the Giants won all of their final seven games, while the Dodgers lost six of their last ten. So at the end of the regular season, both teams were tied with a 96-58 record. And so they, you know, the and the National League said, we're going to do a three-game playoff to decide who's going to win. In the past, like, I'll give you an example, in 48, for the American League, it, both Cleveland and the Cleveland Indians and Boston Red Sox were tied in first place at the end of the season, and they did only get a one-game playoff, which the Indians beat the Red Sox. Which more current baseball does the same thing. Yeah, like with the wild card thing, you know, wild card round. Or even, no, I'm talking even um, if there's a tie for the division here in latter times of baseball, they still do that. Cool. You got to play one game against each other. Yeah. Decided, so. you know, winner, winner goes on, loser goes home. And so they're like, we're going to do a three game playoff. Which, you know, they've, they've never really done this before. Like, you know, this was the, now this is commonplace, but back in 51, this was like extraordinary. You know, to have like a three-game playoff to decide who's going to win the pennant to go to the World Series. And I bet it was electric. And I've got an audio clip I'm going to put in of this home run that we're about to talk about. That Yeah. It's electric, man. It was just electric. I mean, it's, you know. And so they um, they decided to do a coin toss to see who would you know determine the playoff schedule. And so the Dodgers won the coin toss. So they elected to play the first game at home, and then the second and third game. They played the first game at Ebbets Field, and then the second and third game necessary at the Polo Grounds. And so they reasoned that after a likely win in Brooklyn, they would need to win only one of the two at the Giants Park. But in game one of the three-game series, you know, the Giants beat the Dodgers 3-1. to one. And the pitcher, the starting pitcher that day for game one was Ralph Branca. And you're gonna, we're gonna rent, no, remember this name because we're gonna get back to him later in this episode. Because he, if if you know what, if you know this whole thing, you know what we're talking about. But for people who don't, who don't know the situation, remember this name because we're gonna get back to him. And if, and, and this is foreshadowing. Bobby Thompson, the Giants outfielder, again. Remember his name, too. He hit a home run against Ralph Franklin in game one of the series. As well as our fellow Alabamian and future Baseball Hall of Famer, Monty Irvin, who also with the Giants, hit a home run off Franklin. And so, Giants went 3-1. to one. I love future Hall of Famer. I yeah, love it. <laughs> future Hall of Famer. And um, in game two at the Polo Grounds, and apparently the, Yankee, the, the New York Yankees who won the American League pennant that year we're in attendance as spectators. So even the Yankees were like, okay, we got to see this. You know, let's go to the polo grounds. We'll go check this out. Go scout for both teams, you know. Well, there's still guys this postseason that played on other teams, who have been with other teams, who had friends on other teams that were caught in the stands in good seats at postseason games. It's like, yeah, I want to go watch my friends play baseball because I love baseball. Exactly, yeah. I mean. Even though we play against overnight, we might be enemies. Like, I'm sure there's plenty of guys on Red Sox-Yankees that, yeah. Hate each other in the field, love each other in personal life. You yeah, know? and baseball still dominated the American consciousness in the fifties. You know, compared to today. But anyway, we're not gonna get into that. So anyway, game two shows up. You know, the Dodgers tied the series and they won ten nothing. 
Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, Andy Pafko, and Rube Walker hit home runs that game. And, you know, Club Levine of the Dodgers pitched a six-hit shutout against Sheldon Jones of the Giants. So now it's series tied at one-to-one, and now the, set, the scene is set for game three of this series. So I've got a question for you, man. All those guys that hit home runs, back in the day, them ballparks were graveyards. Yeah. Do you have a statistic possibly offhand that you can recall of how many of those home runs in those graveyards were just inside the parkers? Like, I hit it, it rolled, you couldn't get it in time? There, I mean, at least in Forbes Field and the Polo Grounds, I can't really think of the statistics, but there was like a majority. But the thing with the Polo Grounds is it was pretty deep in center field, but like down the Shallow down the lines. I remember playing it in old video games. Yeah, it's shallow down the left field and right field line. So... Depending on where where they hit the ball in the polo grounds, you know, you could get an easy home run if you hit it pretty good down the line. But if you hit it like all the way out 483 feet. Far in the center fielder. Right. You know, it's rolling for days. Yeah. You know, or if Willie Mays is there, he's going to catch it. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one guy, you know. Right. That's, that's like that's like uh, Jim Edmonds was our Willie Mays, I reckon, in yeah. St. Louis with those yeah. phenomenal over-shoulder pass that catches. You're not going to play shallow center field, a shallow outfield when you're playing the polo grounds. Right. Just, you're practically playing the golf course grounds, man. Yeah. So much room. Now, Ebbets Field was different. Ebbets Field was more intimate and had lesser of a uh, distances in the polo grounds. Okay. So, October 3rd, 1951, game three of this playoff. Right. It starts at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, which will be 12.30 in Alabama. And, of course, they're playing the day because, you know. The Four game lights, is, man. Yeah, yeah. Now, the game is televised as well as radio. People around America and even our, uh, the soldiers who were in Korea fighting the Korean War at the time, everybody's paying attention to the game. That's my favorite thing about this. It was one of the most televised things within months of either side of it. Yeah. I mean... You know, and so the, the New York Giants had Sal Magley on the mound, who was known as the barber because he threw a lot of inside pitches, you know, chin music, a lot of chin music. As a, as a former pitcher, I love the chin music. Yeah. As long as you're not head hunting, you're throwing some chin music and then breaking something off slow and away, next pitch, chin yeah. music's where it's at. Exactly. And then Don Newcomb started for the Dodgers. First inning rolls around, Jackie Robinson hits a single. And he scored Pee Wee Reese. So the Dodgers are up one nothing after one inning. They continue to remain score you know, it the score remained one nothing Brooklyn until the bottom of the seventh. When Monty Irvin led off with a double and then he was bunched over to bunched over to third and then he scored on a sack fly by Bobby Thompson, tying the score at one run each. So it's tied one to one after seven innings. Top of the eighth, Brooklyn comes back with a vengeance. Yep, this where it gets wild. Yeah, this is getting crazy. Dodgers came back with three runs. You know, um, Pee Wee Reese and Duke Snyder were on third and first after back-to-back singles. Sal Magley threw a wild pitch that allowed Pee Wee Reese to score and Snyder advanced to second. Jackie Robinson was walked intentionally to set up a double play, but Andy Pafko's ground ball to third bounced off the heel of Bobby Thompson's glove. Boot it. He booted it. Snyder scored and Robinson took third. Billy Cox added another single to score Robinson. So now the score is 4-1 in favor of the Dodgers. 
Newcomb set down the Giants in order in the bottom of the eighth, while Larry Jansen did the same in relief of Nagley in the top of the ninth. All right. And so, Don Newcomb, he was getting tired. He had pitched a complete game on September 29th, four days earlier in Philadelphia, followed by five and two-thirds innings of relief the following day. Dude, with what baseball players get now compared to what they got paid then, yeah, this would be a non-existent thing. Right. You're not going to throw 14 and a two-thirds innings in two days. Yeah, you're or not, in what? That's, that's, you're not two days? Not in two days. I played for a guy in college that would run you out there like that. But it'd be in one day, not back-to-back days. Right. And according to some accounts, after eight innings and only two days rest, Newcomb attempted to take himself out of the game, but Jackie Robinson demanded that he continue. You go out saying, you go out there and pitch until your arm falls off. Newcomb himself insisted that he never asked to be relieved, which was a version that was corroborated by Snyder and Papco. So to start the bottom of the ninth, Giant shortstop Alvin Dark, who later became a manager for the Giants and then the A's, he managed them in when they won the World Series in 74, I do believe. But anyway, he singled off Newcomb to start the bottom of the ninth rally. And so the Dodgers made a defensive mistake with no outs and a runner on first and a 3-1 read, lead. The normal strategy would be to position the infield for a possible double play. But first baseman Gil Hodges played behind Dark apparently guarding against a highly unlikely steal attempt, leaving a large gap on the right side of the infield. The next batter, Dom Mueller, who batted left-handed, hit a single through that gap, advancing dark from first to third. So instead of a rally-killing double play, the Dodgers found themselves facing a potential tying run at the plate with two out, with two runners on base, no way out, and Monty Irvin up, up to bat. So... You know, but Newcomb got Urban to chase an outside pitch and foul out to Gil Hodges. Man, but there's uh, some sports news, sports writers, um, especially Bud Greenspan. They had argued that the Dodger infield played Miller DP depth, double play depth, and his pop up would unlikely have been uh, the seasoning third out. So that's kind of a caveat, and you know the defensive position kind of. Yeah, have they not not shortened up? Might have. Gotten out of it. And so the next batter, Whitey Lockman, du- uh, followed with a double down the left field line, driving in Alvin Dart and advancing Mueller to third. Mueller slid awkwardly into the base, injuring his ankle, and was replaced by pinch hitter, pinch runner, excuse me, Clint Hartung. With Thompson coming up, Dodgers manager Chuck Dressen finally pulled the exhausted Newcomb. And in the bullpen where the Dodgers were, Carl Erskine, who is still alive, by the way. I think he's like 98. He's very old. One of the uh, last, he's 95. He's 95. He's one of the last of the original, you know. Yeah, one, he was born in December of 26 in Indiana. Okay, yeah. So he's 95. He'll be 96 this month. He's still alive today. One of the last of the Brooklyn Dodger greats. So Carl Erskine was warming up, and Ralph Branca as well in the bullpen. Clyde Sukforth, who... It was, we talked about in the Woodboro Clemente episode, discovered Clemente and Jackie Robinson as a scout, but he was a coach at this time. Uh, he noticed that Erskine was bouncing his curved balls short of the plate because apparently Carl problems, was... man. A little weak. Yeah, Carl was dealing with some arm problems that season. And so he told Chuck Dressen to use Ralph Branca in relief. 
That decision has been continually second-guessed by fans, sports writers, and baseball historians. <laughs> because, of course, it has. Branca had lost six of the last seven decisions and gave up a game-winning home run to Thompson in the first playoff game, as we've already discussed. But Dressen's options, however, were severely limited. The only other available pitchers in that crucial situation experience, or the only available pitchers with crucial situation experience, were Clyde King, who was sidelined with biceps tendonitis. Yikes. Preacher Rowe, who, had, who was left-handed. And Clint Levine, who had pitched a complete game the day before. Nevertheless, it was the second questionable decision that Dressen made that inning. So now... Had it worked, we're not questioning it, though. Right. We wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't, be de- we wouldn't have devoted this episode to this. Uh, we just recorded this uh, right after the TCU... Kansas State football game. We were questioning football football plays at the goal line. And it worked. We're not questioning it, you know? Absolutely. And so, now Bobby Thompson is at bat with first base open and Willie Mays is on deck. Yes, because Willie Mays was a rookie this season. Willie Mays was 0-3 with two strikeouts against Brighton. That's a fun point. fact right there. Yeah, that's a fun fact. Willie, this is Willie. I would have never realized that had we not done this that he was a part of the shot around the world. Right. He was there. He witnessed it. You could probably ask him today. He could tell you about it. He'd probably tell you the count and the pitches thrown because he's that kind of astute student of the game still to this day. Yeah, exactly. You know. And so, Thompson's a bat. Willie Mays a deck. On deck. Excuse me. And, you know, against Brankin in the first playoff game, Mays went over three. But Dressen was unwilling to put the winning run on base and worried that a veteran pitch hitter might be brought into bat for Mays if he did so. In a third controversial decision, Dressen elected to pitch to Thompson rather than walk him intentionally. Thompson later recalled that as he left the on-deck circle, Giants manager Leo DeRocher turned to him and said, if you ever hit one, hit it now. it's good advice. Yeah, and of course, Leo DeRocher was on third base this game as a third base coach. Branca's first pitch to Thompson was a called strike on the inside corner. His second was a fastball high and inside, intended as a setup for his next pitch, a, which would be a breaking ball, which a breaking ball down and away. Oh, but Thompson, okay, Bobby Thompson connected with this pitch strongly, driving the ball down the left field line. The ball landed in the lower deck stands near the left field foul line for a game-ending three-run home run. Thompson ran the bases, then disappeared into a mob of jubilant teammates gathered at home plate. The stunned Dodger players began a long walk towards the uh, visitors' clubhouse under the center field bleachers. Robinson turned to watch Thompson, making certain that he touched every base before following his teammates off the field. And there's a picture of, you know, you know, Jackie Robinson watching Bobby Thompson on the bases. You know. And also that also kind of reminds me of, you know, back in nineteen oh eight when the Giants played the Cubs at the Polo Grounds in September nineteen oh eight. They thought, you know, the Giants thought they won the game after a guy, you know, a batter hit a single to score the, the way he run, but Fred Merkel, who was on first base, you know, when he saw the run score, he didn't touch second base when he should have, and he started to go to the clubhouse, and then, you know, it, it, 
a big brouhaha over that ensued that we're going to talk about in another episode. There's a funny story about me at Lee High School. Um, Ian Tabor will know this story if he's listening. Um, one of our coaches that coached us when we were playing JV and varsity, we were both going both ways. At least I was going both ways my first year over there. The guy that was coaching us on JV, he had tagged himself up coming over first one day and missed first on a walk-off grand slam against Huntsville. Oh. And he got out, and I think they wound up losing the game. Oh, man. I think Ian Tabor can validate that story. It was uh, Chris Bryant. <laughs> he's in. He's upstairs now, man, but he uh, screwed one of them up. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Rest in peace. But, you know, and of course, this... And of course, this is well known throughout history because everybody watched it and everybody listened to it. But it's this moment is basically well known for the fact that Giants announcer Russ Hodges made that call on the on the mic. You know, break it throws. It's a long drive, deep left field, going back, gone, home run. Giants win. The Giants win. Pennant. The Giants win the pennant. You know, just if people don't. If, if that may be some for some people, that may be the only thing they remember about this moment or the game itself, just because right. of such an Hunters. iconic radio call. Yeah, absolutely, up there, you know, with the best. And of course, you know, Vin Vin Scully was on the Dodgers broadcast, but Don that was before what, Vin was Vin. Right, that was before Vin was Vin. And also, fun fact: Russ Hodges. Not only was Russ Hodges there, Ernie Harwell, the future legendary Tigers broadcaster. He broadcasted. He was in the booth with Russ Hodges, also calling you know the game. So you got like three Hall of Fame, you know, broadcasters, call it, you know, witnessing this game at the Polo Grounds, you know. So later, after the celebrations had calmed down, a delegation of Dodgers, you know, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, Preacher Rowe, and Jackie Robinson visited the Giants' locker room to offer their congratulations. And Jackie Robinson said, I just want you to know that we didn't lose the pennant. You guys won it. Yeah. I guess it's very humble. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, you beat us. I would expect that from Jackie Robinson. Like, that's, that's my big thing. Like, I'm a, one of the more competitive people you met. You've known me for a long time, Matt. Um, some of our listeners have known me, known me for a long time. I'm more like more competitive of people you're going to know. Mm-hmm. If you beat me, it's cool. If I beat myself, we got a problem. Right. And Jack Robbins, y'all beat us. Yeah. You know? We, we kicked our butts. You know, the game. But, you know, I mean, Bobby Thompson was just all over this game. You know, he... Did he... He was absolutely... I mean, other than the home run, he was absolutely the MVP. There's a handful of plays he was involved in that were very important. Mm-hmm. Um, fielding, base running, all of it, man. Um, at the plate, he was 3-for-3, three three and he hit four of the Giants, batted in four of the five Giants runs um twice he took back the lead from the Dodgers tying it one with a sack sack fly and of course winning with the home run um it's also involved in plays that hurt the Giants like his base running error in the second inning ended a potential rally for the Giants um Jordan McClendon who was broadcasting on the game made comparisons between him and a Markle Merkel's Boner, which cost the pennant in 1908. And for those of y'all that don't know, Merkel's Boner was a running mistake committed by rookie Fred Bo- Fred Merkel 
of the Giants in a game against the Cubs in 1908. And he um, didn't advance to second base on what should have been game one and hit. Instead, forced to play at second and tied the game up. And the Cubs later won the makeup game, which proved decisive. They beat the Giants by one game to win the NL pennant for 1908. Yep. It's been described as the most controversial game in Major League Baseball history. Um, but after tying that game to sack fly in the bottom of the seventh, the Dodgers scored three runs in the top of the eighth to go ahead 4-1, and two of Dodger runs scored on balls hit towards Thompson, one deflecting off his glove in foul territory and the other passing him in left field. Red Smith commented on the latter by asking and answering the rhetorical question, where does Billy Cox's hit go? Where else? Drew Thompson at third. <laughs> After both teams went down in order the next inning, it was under these circumstances that Thompson stepped to the plate in the ninth inning with one out, two runs on, and the Giants went by two runs. Clean up your own mess. I'm with it. Yeah. I'm Redemption. Good. Yeah, because he could have easily, easily that error in the second inning could easily make Bobby Thompson go. He know? went from the scapegoat to the hero. Right, you know, like that. So That's like hitting elevator from elevator one to elevator two. Yep. I Just mean, yeah, were there. Bobby Thompson did what he had to do, and he did it. So, like, obviously the broadcasters, you know, as we mentioned, Russ Hodges, obviously the most famous one. But you have to understand something about 1951. Broadcasts were not routinely taped in 1951, and no one at any of the local radio or television stations was recording the game. The WMCA call, which was the station that Russ Hodges was on, Survives only because only because a Brooklyn-based fan named Lawrence Goldberg asked his mother to tape record the last half inning of the radio broadcast while he was at work. Thank you, Lawrence Goldberg. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's paired up with video, which was done by different voices. But the um, audio I'm going to plug into this episode, which y'all will have heard by now. Yeah. Um, it's the video of NBC, I believe. And then the audio yeah. of Russ Hodges. Yeah. And in later years, Russ Hodges told interviewers that Goldberg was a Dodgers fan who made the tape so he could hear the voice of the Giants weep when Brooklyn won. In fact... That's a fan if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. In fact, though, Goldberg had been a Giants fan since childhood, but he lived in Brooklyn. So, <laughs> I mean... It's funny, though. And then this is the best part. Two years ago in 2020, the Library of Congress inducted Hodges' broadcast into the National Rate Recording Registry for cultural, historical, and aesthetic importance to the nation's recorded sound heritage. It's awesome. That is really awesome. And, of course, as I mentioned, Ernie Harwell's there, who was Russ Hodges' broadcaster with the Giants. And he called the game for the Giants' television flagship station, WPIX. And the independent station's broadcast was carried nationally on the NBC network, the first coast-to-coast live telecast of Major League Baseball game. So this was a historic game, like, you know, broadcast-wise as well as what happened on the field. I mean, just, you know. And it's one of the earlier games on television. Right. And this, you know, in the 50s, this is when people were starting to buy televisions. Like, this was becoming, the television was becoming a bigger deal. As time as the fifties went on, you know, you're a big deal if your family had a television. Right, even, even then, televisions were cheap, and they're still not cheap now. But you know, 
Well, they keep finding ways to make it more expensive. Right. You know, and it's but like, my football looks so much better, so I can't really complain about it. <laughs> exactly. You know, the football looks good, or baseball. Baseball looks good too. Yeah. You know. Um, and so I just said football because it's what's on over here in the corner while we record this. And of course, you know, as we said, Hodges's thing survived, but Ernie Harwell's broadcast did not survive. Obviously, but he later said. In describing Thompson's home run, he basically just said, it's gone. Almost at the moment, Thompson's bat struck the ball. And then watching in dismay as the ball began to sink. And, of course, he, from Ernie Harwell's view, he thought that the ball was going to land into left fielder Andy Pafko's glove and not hit the home run. Right? And so Harwell said, I said to myself, if that ball drops into Pafko's glove, I'm in deep trouble. So he was basically winging it, thinking it's going to be a home run. And had he, the win killed it, right? If the win killed, he looked like a fool, you know. But no, he did. He was right. And as the ball disappeared into the lower deck, he recalled no further commentary was necessary. The pitchers took over, and yeah, you know. So not only was Vince Scully there, legendary announcer Red Barber was also there as well, calling games for the Dodgers on WGM AM radio. And what he described, how he described Thompson's uh, home run was. Branca pumps, delivers, a curve, swung on and belted, deep shot to left field. It is a home run, and the New York Giants win the National League pennant, and the pole rounds goes wild. And Barber didn't really care for Russ Hodges's, Russ Hodges's legendary call of the game, and he basically referred to, um, he described Hodges' call as unprofessional. I guess because Hodges had more enthusiasm <laughs> You know, but it's like, dude, that's... What's wrong with being pumped up about the team you've been pulling for and watching all year? Like, watching the Braves make their playoff run this year, which came up short. Like, they're excited when South Bay's happening because you're with that team every day. Right. You yeah. know, like, what's wrong with that? Or like, you know, like, exactly. You know, like, uh, former Georgia football broadcaster Larry Munson, he was always excited about the Bulldogs said crazy things on the air, and he didn't care. You know, like, when you beat Tennessee in 2001, we stopped in our face... Stepped on their face with a hobnail boot and broke their nose. I mean, you know, that made some people may think that's a professional, but I like, no, you're passionate about your team winning. You watch every game they play. You're a part of that team. You get a ring when it's done because you're there every night, pretty right. much. You know, I mean, like, what's the problem with that? Yeah. And but the, you know, back in that time, you might not have got a ring. I'm not sure how that works. I don't know how, I don't know how it works either. Maybe, I mean, and maybe, um, maybe Red Barber may have been a little more old school than Russ Hodges, but like, dude, when, you, when that, when something like that happens, like it's an important moment, right? You're gonna have you have to capture them. Your job as an announcer and a broadcaster is to capture the moment and capture the delirium that was going on in that game, and that's what Russ Hodges did with his call, and that's why his call gets remembered more than everybody else's. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. That's why his call is gonna make the cut and be in this episode, probably right before this. But yeah. you know, like it's it just. Yeah, and think about if, if as an Auburn fan, and like my my, right. And I remember for, um, Jim Fife being fired up back in the day. Touchdown Auburn, and then Robert Hamlet took over after him. Yeah, you know he still has touchdown Auburn, and they get emotional about like the tip the tip six against Georgia yeah. and the Bama win. You know, like yeah, I mean they get, those those calls making as a sports fan love that. Why as a commentator you would love to have those moments. So I feel like this guy is jealous that he didn't have those moments. I would I would make the argument, yeah. I mean, that's your job is to paint a 
Rembrandt as a with your voice. Right. You know, and that's what you're supposed to do. That's why these people and companies pay you to broadcast their games. So and again, back then it was a little bit different of a game. Yeah, I mean everything was different. So and then and of course for Liberty Broadcasting System, a guy named Gordon McClendon broadcasted the game through the Liberty Broadcast System. And a majority so here's the thing, only local Giants fans heard Russ Hodges called live. So like if you're in New York City, you're gonna hear it. Right. But like in America, Gordon McClendon from Liberty Broadcasting System broadcasted the game. So if you're watching like if you were in Huntsville, Alabama or like were, on the NBC or something like that. Yeah, kind some, of deal. Yeah. If you were like if we were okay, if you lived in like Huntsville in nineteen fifty one and you were listening to the game on the radio, you would probably hear Gordon McClendon's voice describing the game. And his account you know, he also got a little. He he also yelled, did enthusiastic well uh, yell, just like um, Russ Hodges about the Giants won the pin. But of course, his you know, you know it. So like, you know, his account of it, which was reserved on Ernie Harwell's audio scrapbook, remains the only professionally recorded broadcast account of of the entire third game. So I guess, you know. You couldn't get, I mean, you only get part of Russ Hodges' call because of the fan, Lawrence Golding. But you have all of Gordon McClendon's broadcast thanks to Ernie Harwell. And so if you want to hear the entire game, the entire game three, you know, preserved, you could listen to Gordon McClendon's broadcast. And not only that, so like you had, and then like some other, um, Oh, this was nuts. So, like, other broadcasters were at the game that had nothing to do with the Giants or the Dodgers or Gordon McClendon. Like, Al Helfer, who won the Frick Award in 2019, you know, he was doing the game with for Mutual Broadcasting System. You know, he called it a game on the radio. And then there was a Spanish-language network that was doing the call that was led by Buck Cannell and Fellow Ramirez. And then Nat Albright did a studio recreation for the Dodgers Secondary Network in the South. And not only that, Harry Carey, of all people, you know, was in the WMCA booth with Russ Hodges and may have also participated in the broadcast game. So, like, Harry Carey was there <laughs> with Russ Hodges. So you think the um, thing for the South was because they went, used to go to Dodger Town down in Florida? Yeah, like Vero Beach. Yeah, you think that's a big thing in the South part of it? I would say so, and maybe other southern states too, but probably just Vero Beach, maybe Miami because they also played uh, spring training games in Miami as back then. All right, but still, that's just you know Harry, Harry Carey was in the booth. I mean, that's just wild. <laughs> like of all the people like you expect to be at this game, you wouldn't expect Harry Carey of all people. So I guess we gotta get into the origin of the phrase "shot her around the world." Right, absolutely. Um, baseball historian Jules Teigel, T Y G I E L. I apologize, I'm just pronouncing the name Teigel. Yeah, um, Teigel. Yeah. The phrase "shot her around the world" was in the air, having been used literally or slightly debated in connection with the ni- 1935 Masters and Jack Robinson home run, which those all came back to the shot her around, which all know in the Revolutionary War. You know. Yeah. Um. But Jackson Robinson home run just three days prior to Thompson's home run, the fourth playoff series. Like that kind of got the shot around the wild title. And the day after game four on October 4th, 1951, 
The New York Daily News ran a front-page game recap under the headline, The Shot Head Heard Round the Baseball World. And New York Times editorial that same day called Thompson's Homer the home run heard round the world. According to Tigo, the two phrases merged in popular memory and quickly spread to other media and shot heard round the world soon became the most popular epithet for Thompson's Homer. It's a direct reference to a line in Ralph Waldo poem, Concord Hymn, to describe the opening shot of the Battle of Concord. But then in addition to a historical middle reference, the phrase can also be seen as a sign of the times. Tigel read it as a reflection of American post-war arrogance, and sports writer Eric Neal considers it an example of many sports writers of the time displaying a Cold War feel for the apocalyptic in their writing, dramatizing sports through uh, war and battle metaphors. Which, hey, we play sports as kids, man. War is a battle. Yeah. If he's downplaying that, he can go F off. (laughs) But... the very same day Thompson has home run, the Soviet Union set off on top of bomb test, which kind of created a juxtaposition to it of the unrepeatable communal joy, his gallop around the bases, and the collective fear inspired by an escalating atomic race in the next day's newspapers. Yeah. But the nickname, you know, it just stuck. It was a result of media coverage. This three-game series was the first baseball ever televised on a truly national basis, which is really cool. Which make what this what's my, what makes this story the story that it is. Mm-hmm. It's the first one nationwide televised. You know that's really cool because mm-hmm. you know we all tune in for the Final Four and all of that and in NFL playoffs. Mm-hmm. And I love this part. The circumstances of the Giants winning the 51 in open are also referred to as the miracle of Coogan's bluff, which was the hill outside of, uh, was it right field or left field? Uh, I think it was right field. It was behind the polo grounds. Yeah. It was in right field. Coogan's bluff. Yeah. So people that couldn't afford to get into the games would go up there and hang out on the hill and watch the ball games. Yep. Um, and that was the Herald Tribune said the day after the game, but a shot round the herd around the world stuck and, uh, even though both hands have been used. Um, they were 13 games down, man. They overcame it. Yeah. I mean, they persevered. They didn't They didn't look that as, they didn't look to that as, you know, oh, you know, we're, the season's lost. No, we still, it's August. We can still win this. And we, they did, and they did. And then they immediately went to the World Series and lost the Yankees in six games. But that's okay. Who cares about that? <laughs> you know. Didn't there's also rumors that that team was stealing signs in the back half of the season. Mm-hmm. They said they uh, engaged in systematic sign stealing um, from catcher to pitcher. Which me, as a baseball guy, you know, the Houston Astros things, which I'm not sure if we've talked about that much on this podcast or not. I, don't think, I think we briefly touched on it. But yeah, if you're picking up signs, that's one thing. You know, so I don't have a problem with Steinstone, but there was rumors that came out. You know, it's a gentleman's game. But there was rumors that this team was stealing signs, and there's a big deal about that. I'm not sure how deep you want to get into that, Matt. I mean, it's pretty deep. So, like, in 2001, you know, 50 years 
later, um, many of the 21 living Giants players, as well as the surviving coach at the time, told the Wall Street Journal that beginning on July 20th of that year, the team used a telescope in the Giants clubhouse behind center field, which was manned by infielder Hank Shins, S-C-H-E-N-Z, and later by coach Herman Franks, who steal the finger signals of opposing catchers. Stolen signs were relayed via buzzer via a buzzer wire connected from the clubhouse to telephones in the Giants dugout and club dugout bullpen. One buzz for a fastball, two for an off-speed pitch. So they were sending telegraphs. Yeah. And pitcher Al, Al Gettle said, excuse me, every hitter knew what was coming. Made a big difference. Josh Prager, the author of the journal article, outlined the evidence in greater detail in a 2006 book, which was called The Echoing Green, the untold story of Bobby Thompson, Ralph Branca, and the shot heard around the world. I have not read this book personally, but I heard it's good. You know. And of course, you know, although, <clears throat> excuse me, although backup catcher Sal Yavars told Prager that he relayed Rube Walker's fastball sign to Thompson from the bullpen, Thompson repeatedly insisted that he was concentrating on the situation and did not take the sign. Branca made no public comment at the time. Branca said, you know, I made a decision not to speak about it. I didn't want to look like I was crying over spilled milk. And then later, Branca told the New York Times, I didn't want to diminish a legendary moment in baseball. And even if Bobby knew what was coming, he had to hit it. Knowing the pitch doesn't always help. Yeah. That's my big thing, even with the Astros. You know what's coming. Yeah. You got to hit it. But also, the guys at that level these days compared to those days, there's a difference in caliber of athlete. Yeah, absolutely. It's two, it's two different guys. You have different weight training, conditioning, and strength. Oh, life. man. If I had my skills in 2009, graduating high school, that those guys had then, I'd They'd be reading about me, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. And so in another interview, Branca pointed out that luck and circumstance were involved as well. Had the coin toss gone the other way, Thompson's shot would not have been a home run at Evans Field, nor would the game winner he hit in the first playoff game have been home run at the Polo Grounds. That kind of circles back to me. That kind of circles back to me asking you about the uh, – Breakdown of inside the park home runs, not inside the park home runs. Yeah, it still might have been a home run because he might have burnt the guy with it. He could have, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Well, that's hypothetical. And of course, Thompson seemed, you know, at least going back to the first game, he seemed very, you know, he hit Franco well. You know, sign stealing or not, you know, sign stealing or not, you know, he could still hit, hit the fastball. Right, he could hit Branca. and Branca just threw a good pitch that. Thompson hit out of the park to win baseball immortality. Threw a slider over the middle and just breaked it. Yeah. And so whether the telescope and buzzer system contributed significantly to the Giants' late season 37-win, 7-loss win streak remains a subject of debate. Prager notes in his book that sign stealing was not specifically forbidden by MLB rules at the time, and moral issues aside, has been a part of baseball since its inception, which, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I used to be tasked. Uh, I was a relief pitcher in college, man. I'd sit at the end of the bench, even in high school. If I could pick up your signs, cool. That's my knowledge now. Yeah, when you're playing a game, whether it be baseball or what have you, you're always trying to find an edge over your competition. 
whether it be sign stealing or doctoring pitches or what have you, you know, legal or not, moral or not, you're going to find a way to win. I don't think anybody in Major League Baseball would have an issue if I stood at the end of the bench and picked your, picked your steal sign. Right. But now, when you're, you know. Now, if you're doing that, we'll use the steroids and they'll have a problem. Yeah. If you're using <laughs> electronic devices and things, you know, which that comes more modern than this story is. But. Right. And, and, you know, sign stealing using optical or other mechanical aids like the telescope was outlawed by Major League Baseball in 1961. So it took them like 10 years later for MLB to outlaw it. So in 51, they were put. It wasn't that one. It wasn't legal. They were playing by the rules, kind of, you know. <laughs> right. So, um, also, a lot of these pieces are at the Baseball Hall of Fame, Matt. Yeah. And you're, um, as all of our listeners know, you're very familiar with the grounds of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Very familiar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about these pieces? Well, some of the artifacts, you know. So, at the Hall of Fame, Thompson's game bat and shoes are the centerpieces of an exhibit dedicated to the shot at the Hall of Fame. And the exhibit is one of the Hall's more most popular attractions, which according to the curators it is. Still there? I, yes. As I recall, it's still there. Because yes. I, know, I know as a museum, you kind of rotate pieces in and out. Yeah. I mean, you know, to, to change things up, you know, because you can't, you can't put every object in the collection on display. You just can't do it. Just you have to rotate them through to make sure everything right. eventually gets seen. And, you know, if you can't do it, then that's why you have shortstop articles to read, you know? <laughs> By the way, check out shortstop articles. Matthew Carter writes phenomenal shortstop articles. Oh, yeah. I'm writing on one now, but I won't tell you what it is until I get it published. So, anyway, <laughs> we're not going to spoil any secrets. I'm going to try and get some behind-the-scenes scoops for y'all. Yeah. I'm not going to tell y'all about that. Oh, wow. Go to the score. But, anyway, Thompson's game jersey from that day is most likely in the collection of Dan Scheinman, a collector who owns a small minority stake in the Giants. In 2005, he bought two 1951 jerseys, one home and run road from Thompson, who told him that he worn them in the World Series, but could not remember whether he had worn the home jersey for the shot game. Well, I mean, you went straight to the source and bought two jerseys from Bobby Thompson. Probably have both, because in that time, it's not like today we get a new jersey every day. Yeah. And, and then they sell them for used jerseys on the MLB marketplace. Yeah. I think it's great that he didn't go to an auction. He just went straight to Bobby Thompson. And he said, okay, here we go. Yeah, I'll take a bunch of money for this. Yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Here's $1,000 in that time period. And like, oh, sweet. Yeah. Two months rent. Three months rent. You know. And um, Scheinman said, has said that he is about 90% confident that the home jersey is indeed the one that, that Thompson wore when he hit the shot. The Giants, you know, the Giants almost certainly wore the same uniforms for the series, which began the day after the shot game, that they used during the second half of the season, as did the Yankees. And Scheinman's jersey displays distinct puckering around the numbers, probably as a result of steam pressing, that is visible in photos of Thompson taking, taken during and immediately after the shot game. According to a professional textile conservator, such puckering cannot be mimicked or reproduced and would not repeat itself in exactly the same pattern on a different jersey. That's, yeah, okay. The location of the ball is unknown. Documentary filmmaker and author Brian <coughs> Beagle attempted unsuccessfully to authenticate a vintage baseball autographed by several 1951 Giants that his father had purchased at a thrift store for $4. 
and believed to be the Thompson home run ball. He chronicled the project in his 2011 book, Miracle Ball, followed by a documentary film the same name. So I'm glad we this got brought up because I have a copy of the book, Miracle Ball by Brian Beagle. I'm literally looking at it right now. Yeah, Matthew showing, is holding it in his hand. Yeah, I'm showing Patrick the, my copy of the book. Miracle I, Ball, my hunt for the shot heard around the world. And it's a fascinating read because the, the, the author, before he started this, was going through some a big bout of depression after getting a divorce. Like, in the book, he basically says, I basically stayed in bed for, like, days on days because I was so depressed. And, you know, when da- his dad found this ball at a thrift store, it re- it helped him get out of that depression. You so know, find that ball it, it gave him a purpose to, hey, let's go see if, if that ball actually exists. And it's just a really fascinating tale. And I'm not going to give you any spoilers. I would like, I, I would suggest you read the book. To figure it out, but it's a really fascinating story, and you know, it's just another way in, in his way of you know opening. It was like, hey, you know, I went through this depression, but this gave me purpose. You know, I got out of it slowly but surely. I stopped staying in bed all day, especially post COVID. That's a big thing. A lot of people the need, you know, a lot of people COVID brought that to the forefront. Yeah, and you know, it's also a good bonding experience with his dad. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to have those moments. Now, there's one part of the book where after his dad found the ball, he tried, you know, he immediately, uh, like, later, he went to a autograph signing that both Bobby Thompson and Ralph Branca were at. And he tried to, (laughs) the author's dad tried to get Branca and Thompson to acknowledge that this was the, the actual ball that Thompson hit. And both Branca and Thompson were like, no. But they're like, no, that, that, that can't be it. Branca just didn't want to deal with it. He's like, get, get out of here. No. But they still managed to take a picture with, with the author's dad, which I'm showing Patrick now. This is a picture. And so that's Branca right there. Bobby yeah, they all, look, right they all look jovial in the picture. Yeah, they look jovial. But after that was like, I think after they, he tried to convince them that this was a ball. <laughs> you think it's, is it the actual ball? You think it's the ball? No, I don't think it was the actual ball. And, and they and after a while they didn't think it was either. And then I'm asking questions having not read the book. Right. Obviously. Basically the author had to go hire a bunch of private eyes to figure out and you know, forensic people to like go look at the 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 polo ground stands, a picture of the polo ground stands that day of where the ball landed and all that. It, it was just it's a really fascinating tale. And I'm 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 not gonna tell you what happened, whether you found it or not. I would suggest you read the book, but it's just really fascinating. You know. So I guess when you get on the legacy of this ball game, man, um, yeah. ESPN Sports Century ranked it the second greatest baseball game, but second greatest game ever played behind the 58 NFL championship game, which is known as the greatest game ever played. Yeah. Um, and it ranked Thompson's home run the 15th on its list of 100 greatest moments in sports history. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incorporated as a prologue in Don DeLilio's 1997 novel Underworld, in which the fate of the ball is a central focus of subsequent events sped across decades. And it was also featured in altered form in DeLillo's Pathco at the Wall, which was subtitled Shot Heard Around the World, originally published as a folio in the October 19 magazine of Harper's Magazine, and released in 2001 as a novella. Mm-hmm. 
That's about what I got about that. But I do want to add something about a guy that is a press member mm-hmm. or former press member. He passed away. He was a longtime Yankees guy. There's another story that came out of this. Um, it's a gentleman by the name of Edward Joseph Lucas. Um, he was a sports writer who primarily covered the New York Yankees. But he was at the game when the shot heard around the world happened. And um, later that evening, he went and played with all the neighborhood boys. He was 12 years old at the time, went and watched the game with his dad. And that evening of this game, um, he was a left-handed pitcher. He went and played um, a sandlot ball with some of his buddies. It was at the uh, ice rink, which that time of year was not ice. It was um, hard top. So he took his glasses off, put them in his back pocket to pitch, and um, he this lefty pitcher threw a heater down the middle and got smoked right in the face and um, lost both of his retinas disconnected. So he was blind from then on. Um, it resulted in loss of sight, and he wound up being a reporter and a broadcaster just based off sound. Um, Seton Hall University gave him a bachelor's degree in communication arts. Um, in 2006, he and his second wife were the first couple to be married on the field of Yankee Stadium. They had been introduced to each other by Phil Rizzuto because when he was a kid, Phil Rizzuto was a Yankee. And um, his mother introduced him to him, and he kind of pushed him in the direction of this. Um, there's not too much data on him. There's a really good ESPN video, if you Google his name, um, Ed Lucas. Mm-hmm. He's a sports writer, and there's a lot of Yankees, even like Mariano. And I'm like, yeah, he was always around the locker room. He didn't act like he was special, even though he was blind. And he would type up, even in Braille, his articles, man. And it's a really cool story that he fell in love with baseball that day, went and played with his buddies. And it's a really cool thing. It's a guy named Ed Lucas, longtime sports writer for the Yankees. And I think he worked for NESN, or not NESN, it'd be uh, SNY. SNY, yeah. Uh, briefly. Um, but it's a really cool guy that he can look into. There's a nine and a half minute video that ESPN put out on SportsCenter about him. If y'all checked that out, it'd be. It's a really cool thing because he found a lot of baseball from this event. Yeah. Isn't that something? Um, but there's not too much on the internet about him except for that video. So he's kind of behind the scenes. He just loved the game. Yeah. I mean, sports bring people together. That's it, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes it's bigger than sports. Absolutely. Well, my big thing in his story when I watched that video earlier, um, a lot of players were like, he didn't want special treatment. He was just here for baseball. And he even said himself, I'm here for the crack of the bat and the sound of the crowd when somebody hits a home run. Because I'll never forget that day in 1953 when that happened. 51. 51. Yeah. When it happened. When it happened, yeah. You know, and that's what, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, uh, and he yeah. lost his vision that same afternoon. Yeah. And on a personal note, the 51 shot her around the world. My grandfather was in Fort Worth, Texas. He was in the Air Force during that time. And he remembers walking by a TV, uh, you know, a shop that sold TVs. Had a tall window full of TVs out front. Yeah. And he remembered watching it with other people, you know, that the shot heard around the world on that TV in that shop window in Fort Worth, Texas. You know, so I'm like, well, that's a cool moment, you know. 
Well, I'm thanks. It was towards the beginning of television, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then still on radio. Not everybody had a TV set, so everybody was listening, whether they were watching it or listening to it. Yeah. It's one of the most iconic moments in baseball, and according to ESPN, the second most iconic moment in the history of sports. Yeah, wow. So, and that was when they were doing their East Century team, so that was, there might be some more moments now, but that was, years ago they did that. It's easily a moment that will live on forever in baseball, American, and sports history. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm sure you can ask older people in New York, and they can tell you where they were when they saw or heard Bobby Thompson hit that home run, you know. Whether it be at the polo grounds or at listening to the game or watching a TV, you're watching on TV somewhere, you know, I mean, it just be anything, yeah. So. Got anything to add to it, bud? Well, I got, we need to talk about, we need to talk about this year's National League Cy Young um, award race. Because, now, let me be clear, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little, I was a little disappointed in the finalists because our boy Kyle Wright, Huntsville native, Buckhorn grad, led the league and wins most of the year. Tw- yeah, only only pitcher to win twenty games in both leagues was not a finalist in the National League Signing Award race. I got a problem with that. I felt I felt that he got jipped. Now let me be clear, especially not- since my cousin married his cousin. Right. <laughs> now let me be clear. I'm not saying that Kyle Wright should have won the Cy Young Award. His name should have been up. He should have been a finalist. Now, do you feel that sometimes that award becomes a popularity contest? Though I feel like it. Yeah, and especially now, like Gold Gloves and things like that, they're statistical. Yeah, but that I feel like Cy Young is a little more popularity. You're going to sell more of these rolling gloves, right? And then, like you know, now I agree with Sandy Alcantara winning the Cy Young. He was he was very good this year, but you have to understand this is where we are today in baseball. Nobody cares about wins anymore. They care about quality starts and what your wins above replacement is. Because when every, every time I was on it on Instagram or Facebook, quality whenever, starts is trash, Matthew. Wins above replacement, I can kind of get with a little bit, but quality starts that's BS. Quality yeah. starts is you didn't finish what you started. Right, you know, you just you either got a no decision. Or you As lost. a fantasy baseball guy, I love quality starts because I still get a couple of points for that. Yeah, you know, I used to be in that league with Coach Johnny and um, KD and all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but quality starts that was an important stat in that league, and Spin was in that league. Yeah, um, sorry for those of y'all that nation that we're talking to some guys from our hometown that were our coaches when we were youth. You know, um, yeah. I was in that league, and, and Spin, he's a star player. He's a savant in anything sports. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, quality start, it's a stat. It's a measurable stat. But I think saber metrics are kind of – they're really good stats to have, but they shouldn't be involved. And Like Kyle Wright. Yeah. Man, he, he deserved – He deserves some – at least to be a finalist, in my personal opinion. Now, if anybody wants to disagree with that, they can go on – you know, go email us at baseball baseballhis101 at gmail.com, and you can tell us your opinion and tell us that we're both losers or what have you. That's fine. You let Major League Baseball in wins. Right. How, how do you get? How does that get passed over for quality starts? 
like Framber Valdez in the American League for the Astros. Same thing without you know him and Alcantara. You know, there's only been a handful of guys that have won 20 games since like Clemens and them back in the day. Right, 20 winning 20 games now is hard to do, right? I remember uh, in 2018, Jacob Degrom won the Cy Young Award and his record was 10 and nine. But he led like in other categories and I guess, like strikeouts. And, yeah, and maybe some people thought there was some quality starts in there too. You know, I mean, but you know, and, then, and now David Degrom's with the Met, uh, with the Rangers now. He the, the they, they he went to the Rangers yesterday, uh, December December second yesterday. So, but it's like, you know, I personally felt that Kyle Wright got you. And if Kyle's listening to us, both Patrick and I are team Kyle. I'll make sure I'll make sure this gets to him. Yeah, and I have the avenues to get this to him. And partially, it's because even if I just clip this segment and get it to him, I can make sure this gets to him. Yeah, and partially it's because I felt that he was a better pitcher than let's say. Julio Urias, you know, or maybe Max Fried, his teammate on the Braves. I mean, they're all three. Now, all three of the finalists are great. Everybody that got there was a great pitcher, man. But you, you led the league in wins, right? How does that get passed over for like by multiple wins? By yeah. multiple wins, it wasn't just like I edged you out and I got to win the last day, right? You're a couple wins ahead, right? Alcantara only won 14 games this year for the Marlins, and then you circle back and look at the World Series last year, and I think. And for Kyle, I've been telling my family for years because he married my cousin and they're all big Kyle homers. I'm like, I love Kyle. Yeah. His dad, Roger Wright, man, he's a great dude. Yeah. But, but that win he got in the World Series last year when he came in relief and got that win, mm-hmm. I told my family right then, this is going to set this guy off. And it damn sure did. Yeah. Because until then, I've been saying he should be a spot reliever or a middle reliever, late reliever for the Braves. He proved himself different and he put up a hell of a year. And he deserves to be rewarded for it and didn't get it. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't even going to bring it up. Yeah. Wasn't even really thinking about it, but you were 100% correct, Matthew, in my opinion. I had to get this off my chest since November when they announced the finalists. I was like, next podcast we're doing, I don't care what the topic is. At the end of it, we're going to talk about this. I'm fired up about it. I agree with you. Hell yeah. High five. Woo! Right. And of course, partially it's because Kyle's a great pitcher. He's a great pitcher. He's a local boy, too. So we're a little bit of homers on that. Yeah, I mean, we're we're not going to lie about the homer aspect because it'd be really cool. But you led Major League Baseball in wins. Right. How do you, how, uh, let me, let me, I pulled up the the votes, how the voting thing went down for the signing this year. So, like, you know, he was, he wasn't even like, you know, fourth or fifth place in the voting. He was like 10th. He only got, one vote for like fourth place, and then one vote for fifth place in somebody's ballot. <coughs> Ash. Right, and so all together he had like three points total, which the point system is weird. Alcantara got like thirty first place votes, and like all together two hundred ten points all together. And Freed got like ten second place votes, seven third place votes, five fourth, one fifth. Well, Freed had the numbers last year, and you think it kind of rolls over a little bit because you're a more established man. And Kyle Wright does the same thing next year. I bet he gets it next year. And right. I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's trash because you put up, what, what do you get, 21? 21? 21 wins. 21 wins? 21 wins. And right. when's the last time somebody's had 21 wins? It's been a few years. It's been a couple of years. I don't think anybody did last year. Certainly so what the hell are we doing here? What I mean, like, the, uh, my, my question, I, I made an Instagram story about it when they announced the uh, the finalists last month. I said, what is the BBWA, BB? W A A been smoking? Like, what have they been smoking? Like, how do you not put him in the finals? 
Oh, we got a pod, top ten podcast. We need to figure out how to get ourselves votes. Right, exactly. You know, now I will say this: the city of Huntsville, Huntsville City Council, like did a nice little recognition for Kyle. I think last week or yeah, I think it was like last week. And there's video of this on one of the local stations. Longtime city councilman Bill Kling, who's been on the council since 1988. Yeah, he's been a councilman as long since I've been alive. Forever, you know. So I was born in '90. You were too, I think. Yeah, '99. Yep. So Bill Kling gives like Kyle Wright this little, you know, di- diploma looking things like you you're being recognized by six. It's Kyle Wright Day today. It's Kyle Wright yeah. Day. Like they don't give him the key to the city. They just give him this little diploma and say, "Hey, it's Kyle Wright Day." In recognition of your great season, which we all we, we're all in agreement he had a great season, you know. And then the best part was, you know, like Kyle gets the diploma, and then Bill Kling tries to give Kyle the microphone so he can give a speech, and then Kyle's like, "No, I don't. I'm not doing a speech. Just thanks." He just waved and just walked off. You know, <laughs> he's like, "I'm not feeling it." You know. Well, can you blame him, man? Like, what are you gonna feel like? Hey, I'm a baseball player. Most of y'all don't even watch me every night. You know. You know, like yeah, gee, thanks. You know, I mean. Because be baseball is becoming more of a niche sport. I hate it. I read that somewhere that you're right. It is becoming it, like somebody mentioned that too. It's becoming a niche sport, and I was like, "This is sad." Yeah, this is America's pastime. It's becoming a sec- America's secondary pastime. Um, where you know, th- this is where we're at in society right now, and that's sad. I 100 percent agree, but yeah. I agree with. I'm glad you brought that up. That gets me fired up. Man. Yeah, and also. I would be remiss if we should, you know, if we don't send our condolences to the families of uh, Hall of Famers Bruce Souter and Gaylord Perry, who passed away recently, like Bruce in October, and then Gaylord Perry got passed away like on Thursday, uh, December 1st. So, yeah, our condolences to some Hall of Famers. Yep. Yeah. And that's all I got to add. I mean, that's, that's all I got. <laughs> the Kyle Wright thing I've been fired up with. I'm good. I'm glad I fired you up. Let's do uh, it. It makes it, it, it is one hundred percent BS that he is not. He did not win. Right. He did not win the Cy Young. And granted, it's because he's young and he doesn't have you know. Him winning the Cy Young doesn't sell jerseys, and that's the problem. Right. BBWAA. This is my message to you. Stop looking at quality stars. Baseball Writers Association of America. For those right. at home. The Baseball Writers Association of America should have made that more clear. Stop looking at quality starts and look at fucking stats. Look at 21 wins and go, this guy needs to be a finalist. This guy should win the, the sign. For once, Matt was the first one to be a bum. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I, was, I was furious. And if you, if you followed me on Instagram and saw that story last month, you knew I was furious. Yeah, it, right. it's, it's bullshit. But, hey, what can we do about it? Right. We, we're we just got to get ourselves in a position to get ourselves a vote with this podcast. Well, maybe somebody from the BBWA will listen to this podcast and go, yeah, you know, maybe we were wrong in that. And maybe we should. Maybe maybe we can get connected with them and start being baseball writers and we can get our own votes. Exactly. You know, because, you know, we vote, we put Kyle Wright like a number one. We'll give him like a first place vote if we if we were in charge. But you know what? That all comes down to y'all liking, subscribing and um, sharing sharing our podcast and or getting your request to baseball101 baseballhis101 at gmo.com and um I reckon we're going to wrap it up right there, man. As always, I'm Patrick and I'm Matthew. And we really appreciate y'all listening to us. We'll catch y'all next time. Yeah, thanks guys. His kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, 
marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Now my old friend, the bachelor, well he swore he was the Oklahoma kid. And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke. And me, I always loved Willie Mann, those were the days. Well now it's the 80s and Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met And the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Cuisinberry Talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt and by the blue and it's no fluke They'll be with Willie Mickey and the Duke Willie Mickey and the Duke Say hey, say hey, say hey It was Willie 